0: some doctors have begun to say the quiet parts about advanced care planning out loud.
1: Well, you know, there are so many things that we talk about that I think, ah, oh, this would be very interesting to the public, but it's not useful and it's potentially harmful, so let me not say it.
0: Today we ask, does advanced care planning work? As we present Doctors Daniela Lamas and Ira Bayok in conversation.
1: Would it be useful for me to make instructions about specific interventions that I think I would be willing to tolerate in some future hypothetical scenario of illness? I I don't really think so.
2: I don't think that advanced care planning, writ large, is something we should move away from entirely, but it clearly has been poorly designed, and as we've been doing it, it is clearly broken.
0: The future of advanced care planning today on the Hear Me Now podcast, which comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hi everybody, I'm Sean Collins. Glad you're with us. The movement towards making advanced care planning a routine part of medical care in this country started in the 1970s. Fifty years later, one view holds that we've made progress towards normalizing the discussion of care options between providers and patients and families before there is a crisis. Another view is that advanced care planning has failed. In October of last year, the Journal of the American Medical Association ran an opinion piece that posits, quote, Many clinicians may be disappointed that promoting conversations with patients well in advance of needed medical decisions has not improved subsequent care as hoped. That piece was written by doctors Sean Morrison, Diane Meyer, and Robert Arnold, three palliative care physicians in New York and Pennsylvania. None of us has a crystal ball, one that gives us a clear view of the circumstances of our final illness. So we find ourselves triangulated, balanced uneasily on a three-legged stool. One leg tries to put your wishes in writing, even at the risk that that document becomes outdated by the realities and tragedies of the moment. The second leg advocates for naming a surrogate decision-maker, a trusted proxy who can speak for you when you're not able to speak for yourself. And the third leg is plain old-fashioned denial, where we ignore the need for any sort of planning at all. Dr. Daniela Lamas is a pulmonologist and a critical care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She's also a frequent contributor to the op-ed pages of the New York Times. In early January, she wrote a piece that the paper headlined, When Faced with Death, People Often Change Their Minds. In it, she writes, Since the Patient Self Determination Act of 1990 went into effect, advanced care planning, which encourages all adults, even those in good health, to choose a surrogate to make medical decisions and to drop an advanced directive, that has been promoted as a way to make sure that people receive the care they want at the end of their life. But this well intentioned effort has not worked as promised. End quote. Dr. Lamas is our guest today, along with Dr. Ira Biok, palliative care physician, author, and longtime advocate for the best care possible throughout life. Ira is also the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring under whose aegis this podcast is produced. We've invited these two physician leaders to the program today for a frank conversation about the efficacy of advanced care planning and the controversy that's swirling in some clinical circles these days. I'm so pleased to welcome the two of you. Dr. Lamas, let's start with you. Do you really think that advanced care planning is for naught?
1: Thank you for for having me on and uh, even your introduction made me think, and really, this is such a complicated but important uh, topic to to think about. And it's important because I think, you know, needless to say, um, it translates into you know what recommendations we we make uh, for for people um, for everybody. Really, do I think advanced care planning is for naught? I mean, I think I think it depends how we define our terms. Um, I think that that the word advance um, itself uh, uh, raises questions. Uh, do I think that it would be useful for me in in good health, um, whose view of illness comes from you know being in the MICU uh, as a doctor frequently, but never experiencing experiencing it. Thankfully, myself or or in uh, close family members, would it be useful for me? to make instructions about specific event, interventions that I think I would be willing to tolerate in some future hypothetical scenario of illness? I, I, I don't really think so. Uh, would it be useful for me to decide on a healthcare proxy? Sure. Um, but, you know, when we think about advance, I mean, I'm assuming here that this is far in advance of something, you know, advance, I think advance care planning, though, if it looks like a uh, sort of thoughtful conversation about serious illness with somebody who has already received uh, a serious diagnosis and is sort of looking down the pike and seeing these things being possible, I think that kind of advanced care planning is necessary. So I think it really just ter- depends on how we define our terms.
2: Well, I agree entirely with what you just said. And and, and I wanna thank you for the opinion piece that, that you wrote uh, for the Times. It really advanced the conversation quite a bit in um, in our field and I think in the general public. My colleagues, um, uh, Sean Morrison, uh, Diane Meyer and, and Bob Arnold, uh, did us a service uh, in mm-hmm. um, surfacing this issue and the really difficult to track outcomes of all of the energy that we put into advanced care planning in American healthcare. I, um, agreed with part of what they said strongly but um, but the the flavor of the piece I felt was unduly nihilistic and and defeatist and I think as you started uh, in in this conversation Daniela you, you said it really depends on what you're what you're using as terms um, I, I I don't think that advanced care planning um, writ large is is Um, something we should move away from entirely, but it clearly has been poorly designed. And as we've been doing it, it is clearly broken. Even in their piece, uh, we have to distinguish the process of advanced care planning from the forms that we have given people, these advanced Directive documents, which are clearly uh, broken, and I and I hope to come back to that. Um, But the other thing is that that as you also just uh, surfaced that um, the word advance is is a bit of a a challenge, and um, and I want to I don't want this to be in any way promoting of of only promoting of what we've been doing through the Institute for Human Caring and at Providence. But we've recognized that the forms are, are uh, a problem and that the process is broken uh, quite a few years ago. And we have been very intentionally redesigning uh, goal-aligned care and the processes and tools for goal-aligned care now for quite a few years. Uh, and so we see it as advanced care planning is what happens well before uh, somebody is seriously ill or needs to make These decisions, though it could happen near the end of of a patient's illness if they haven't done any of this before. But it is intended to be just something that adults do to complete their healthcare record, frankly. Give us somebody you name, somebody you trust to speak for you who, if heaven forbid you were in a health crisis, you would want us to talk with about making decisions about your care. And then we've added, and Uh, provide some general information about your orientation toward life-saving treatments if you wish to as guidance for the person you just named and your future doctors. But even that's optional. And then we've been talking about shared decision-making or the term we use as goals of care conversations, which is also not a perfect term but is intended to talk about or intended to refer to shared decision-making when somebody is diagnosed with a serious illness. And even that is intended to be an iterative process, which changes as the illness either progresses or gets better. So I, I think they, they tended to, you know, um, lump things together yeah. in a way that was provocative and did indeed, uh, start a quite a, uh, debate within our field. But, um, you know but ultimately I, I think dissolves into its parts
1: i i mean i I hear that um, I admit i was uh hesitant uh initially to uh, to bring this from sort of the Medical literature, where and the sort of inner circle of like palliative care experts, where this conversation has lived, um, and into uh, the lay public, and and had uh, some very helpful conversations with Sean Morrison, and then James Tolsky at my hospital, and Susan Block, um, uh, really with the question of, is this okay? Uh, you know, can I write about this? And, um, you know, not that somebody can necessarily tell you what or what not to write about, but, you know, is is this a conversation that um, is sort of ready and useful? You know, there are so many things that we talk about that I think, ah, oh, this would be very interesting to the public, but it's not useful and it's potentially harmful, so let me not say it. Uh, and and so this one, you know, I, I debated about, um, and I think the reason that it is useful is raising the questions that that you, bring up, which is that, that perhaps it is not necessary to ask a loved one about interventions, specific interventions on a form that they can't imagine. And
2: yes, it's, it's actually counterproductive. It, it, it's really exactly. nonsensical. Yes. I mean, uh, and I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a guilty party here. I mean, uh, you know, I was practicing back in the early 80s. Uh, I have been mm-hmm. a champion for advanced care planning and the old style of advanced directives for, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, decades. And I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many calories I've burned, how many public talks, how many, uh, how many grand rounds <laughs> and things that I've done in, in my career to advance advanced directives. Uh, and I wish I hadn't because... Because uh, they they are flawed, and and I want to I want to say some things that I I plan to actually write about uh, in in the not too distant future, but just to get your reaction uh, uh, to um, uh, (laughs) where to start. So all of this starts way 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 back, of course. I mean, uh, here's a here's a quote that uh, I I recently just refound. It may be familiar to you. Every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body. And a surgeon who performs an operation without his patient's consent commits an assault for which he is liable in damages. This is true except in cases of emergency where the patient is unconscious and where it is necessary to operate before consent can be obtained. Is that familiar to you?
1: I mean, the concepts are familiar. I admit to ignorance as to the specific quote, though.
2: So this comes from a 1914 court decision by uh, Justice Benjamin Cardozo, in the in what has become a famous case of uh, Schollendorf versus Society of New York Hospital, where a woman who uh, had a surgery performed uh, that she hadn't consented to uh, later developed uh, gangrene and had an amputation and sued the the hospital uh, for damages. And although she lost because they basically said, you can't sue the hospital, you could sue your, your surgeons, mm-hmm. the, the opinion uh, is really um, cited often as the beginning of goal-aligned care and the notion that we, we, any adult of sound mind should be able to refuse any treatment that is offered to him or her. And that really subsequent decisions have said, you don't even have to give a reason for why you're refusing the treatment. You just have to say no, I decline, and and your right needs to be protected. So then, scrolling forward, mm. right, we come to um, Karen Ann Quinlan case uh, in New Jersey. Uh, she was born in 1954. Uh, about uh, and and she was a young woman who had a car accident, ended up in a persistent vegetative state. Family. Petitioned for her uh, um, ET tube or her ventilation to be discontinued, which was ultimately the New York State uh, Supreme Court said yes, uh, and that established the right to refuse uh, a surrogate right to refuse for you. Uh, The Cruzan Nancy Cruzan case in the in um, 19 early 1980s further solidified. Uh, this was in Kansas, and they said, if you have clear and compelling evidence or kind of it was a it was almost a criminal uh, level of evidentiary evidence, but you could you could refuse. It was said that she didn't have that. so the the court said that it, uh, life-saving treatments needed to be continued, uh, but that was strong evidence that advanced directives are needed. And then, Many of us, including myself, were were active in trying to promote this idea. And then uh, back to, uh, again, um, Senator Danforth's uh, from, I think, Missouri's uh, Patient Self-Determination Act from 1990, which said that every place that receives Medicare funds needs to at least ask adults if they wanted to have an advance directive. Mm. But what happened thereafter was... The advanced directives were designed by attorneys mm-hmm. on the chassis of contracts, Got it. and they were designed so that um, uh, to protect you from things that you didn't want. I don't want CPR. I don't want this tube in my throat. I don't want dialysis or medically administered nutrition and hydration. I have trouble as a as a doc who. Practiced family medicine, emergency medicine for quite a few yeah. years, and and hospice and palliative medicine. I would have trouble writing an advanced directive and saying whether I wanted or did not want mechanical ventilation, dialysis, medically administered nutrition, hydration. I'd have to know well what what condition
1: right.
2: What's the- am I in? Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: You know, did I just have a car accident? Had a head injury? Might wake up. Yeah. Could still do a crossword puzzle, maybe. Right. Mm, You know, or am I riddled with cancer? You're reading this when I don't have any chance whatsoever of life that's worth living to me. Right. Right. So it's impossible to do that. If I could go one step further, the attorneys on that contractual chassis uh, required for this to be a legal document your advance directive, which was first called a living will, for it to be either notarized by a notary public Mm -hmm. or witnessed by two people who are unrelated to you and not your doctor, right? Right. Um,
1: So interesting.
2: And and I got to tell you that that um, requirement is what, often makes these advance directives landfill because I I can give them to a patient. And if the patient is able to complete what they want or don't want, I then have to say, and please have this witnessed by two people who don't know you or notarized and bring it back to us, right? Yeah. Never happens. I mean, it happens rarely, right? Which is why about even in, in well, Functioning systems. About thirty percent of adults have these documents, and I—I I guess I—I'll turn it back to you and say, do you, are you aware of any data whatsoever that shows any added value to having documents, uh, advanced care planning documents, witnessed or notarized?"
1: Um, it's fascinating. I am—I am not aware of, it, of any data, um, nor, nor sort of just in, you know intuitively. From sort of a human perspective, do I think that uh, it feels like such a disincentive? Um, You know, you're already talking about a subject that is uh, largely unimaginable and uh, for most scary. And then uh, it also is is so counter to the spirit um, of of what these should be, right, which are living documents that change depending on where you're at, to change depending on the context exactly as you said, rather than a legal binding decision that carries you through until time. Of course, you know, that carries you through time. I mean, that's that's not what we ever intended them to be, so.
2: Yeah. I had an aha moment a number of years ago when uh, a colleague of ours uh, uh, Dr. Joseph Fins uh, at NYU, is a clinical ethicist, internist clinical ethicist, wrote a wonderful paper um, uh, called uh, From Contracts to Covenants or something. I think it was along those lines. And, and Joe observed that advanced directives were built on this sort of contractual chassis and contracts exist to protect you from future harm, right? But most people want decisions about care, their own care in life-threatening situations to be made in a covenantal fashion mm-hmm. by people they inherently trust, who they know have their backs, who, who are going to act in their best interests. Uh, and, and, he, and he pointed out that we're, we're going about this in, in the wrong way.
1: I mean, I think that's... that's- Sort of resonates clearly with um, with the kinds of questions you know with what we're talking about, and I think I think the question of harm is interesting too. I mean, it is it is framed in a way that um, which you know perhaps is fair for the way a lot of people feel about the medical system, but um, it is a way it is saying of protecting you against people who are going to do things that are not in your best interest, and you know if if people and And clearly, we need to do a lot to build trust. But um, if people said, "All right, like I sort of to what you were saying earlier about what you ask people to fill out, you know, are you somebody who likes who would tend to be a more intervention person or a less intervention person, um, acknowledging that that might shift depending on uh, what these interventions, where they can get you, and where your situation is, You know, if you could say, "Well, look, I'm kind of a more intervention person. If you can get me back to something that's you know sort of like what I was before, and then you trust your doctors to play it out, um, that exactly. That, but that's not. And but but you know nobody. So you know I think people want to come in. It feels in the ICU. Feels in the ICU, like families that is often what people want. But then they're tangled up in, but there is this thing that they told me they would never want this, or they told me they would always want this, and how does that align? And, and yeah, I think it becomes, it becomes confusing, and often these statements that people make um, are not helpful, but, but end up being no. sort of harmful.
2: Exactly. Um, so I want to I, I get to w- w- how we're reconceptualizing wow. this because I'm really eager for your uh, um, response and see. Let me say one other yeah. thing, which is that I, I later ended up doing some research with uh, with uh, uh, Joe Finns. Uh, we tested this. We actually yeah. got a bunch of, of uh, patients and, and their huh. surrogate decision-making dyads together. And we gave them a series of uh, hypothetical cases, but there are cases that are pretty pretty um, resonant, and, and I won't go through it because was a pretty complex design, but we, we asked basically people who said, I wouldn't want anything done, or if you were to say to your surrogate, I wouldn't <coughs> want anything done, and then you ended up with a pneumonia, mm-hmm. and the doctor said to your surrogate, well, you know, we think that within a few days of ICU care, he could probably completely recover. What do you think? And if your surrogate decided to do that, even though the surrogate knew that you had said no, no, never, would you feel betrayed, mm. right? And and we did the other valence, the exact opposite valence mm-hmm. as well. I want everything done, but then after two weeks of, you know, being in the ICU and, and you were, you know, clearly not responding and, and there was no... The doctor said there was no physiologic chance of you recovering uh, and your surrogate decided, yes, let's let you die gently. Would you feel betrayed, right? So we we did all of this, right? In general, basically the, the bottom line was that about 85 to 90% of people said no, I, I'd be okay with whatever they decided. Yeah. Um, supporting this hypothesis that people really do want their decisions made in this kind of covenantal trusting mm-hmm. relationship. Yeah. So that's been bouncing around my brain for, for a number of years. Um, in the last few years, what, what we've tried to do is, again, separate advanced care planning from from goals of care or shared decision making during serious illness. Yeah. And then say that as a as a standard, which is basically aspirational, our health system sees the naming of someone you trust to speak for you, if you can't speak for yourself, to be completing your health care record. Just like we ask everybody for allergies to medications, we may not be anticipating that we're going to give you something that's going to cause an anaphylactic shock reaction, but we'd be negligent if we didn't have that in your record. It wouldn't feel complete. And in fact, there's hard stops for Sending somebody to surgery or doing, you know, some cancer treatment if we don't have the allergy list complete. Mm-hmm. So we've been saying Thanks. that all adults, age of eighteen or over. I mean, I just mentioned the Karen Ann Quinlan case, Nancy Cruzan. I could throw in Terry Shivo. Okay. They were all healthy young women. Uh, who did not have serious diagnoses, who ended up in circumstances that caused major uh, crises within their families, and all of those three became quite public.
1: Yeah, no, that's that makes sense. That's smart.
2: Now, what we've done in the last, well, I guess, three years is we redesigned uh, one of the forms of advanced directives. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it our easy form. It's It's a single-page form, it actually came from a conversation I once had with uh, a uh, guy named Chris Smith, a, a, a wonderful primary care doctor in Seattle, who one day on, on a call with me said, Ira, can't we just create a one-page simple advanced directive form that could be completed in a single visit? Well, yes. Sure. <laughs> so our, our easy form is, has three parts. One. Who would you trust to speak for you if you couldn't speak for yourself? Mm -hmm. Give us name and contact information. Second, and this is the part I'll spend a tiny bit of time Mm -hmm. on, Daniela. Give us your general preferences as guidance to the person you just named. Tell us about your general preferences about um, treatments in life-threatening situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you somebody who... Uh, the the statement resonates, I want to continue living even if my quality of life seems low to others and I'm unable to communicate with people. In general, I would accept support for my breathing, heart, and kidney function by machines that require me to be in a hospital or special care unit. Or uh, second, life is precious, but I understand we all die sometime. I want to live as long as I can interact with others and enjoy some quality of life. I would accept intensive treatments only if I had a reasonable chance of getting better. I would refuse long-term support by intensive medications or machines if my quality of life was poor and I was unable to communicate with other people. Third, it is most important to me to avoid suffering. I do not want extraordinary medical treatments such as breathing machines or cardiopulmonary resuscitation. If my natural body functions fail, I would refuse treatments and choose to die naturally. We added a fourth that we put first okay. in, in the form. And it says, I am not sure at this time which statements below I agree with. I trust my healthcare agent to do what is best for me. And then the third section is cool. have witness or notarization to make it a legal document. So I, I have one more iteration of mm-hmm. this, but I'll will pause and what do you think about that approach to? I mean, uh, adopt- I,
1: I think first of all I think the you know deciding on a healthcare proxy uh, entirely makes sense. Um, I was going to say particularly if a family is complicated, but. Families are all complicated, so particularly if you have a family, um, and also if you don't. Uh, so yes, um, you know I, I think I would love to think more about you know these these options. I think those really do encapsulate um, the what we kind of want to know from people when we're asking their family members. Tell me, like, what kind of person is this? Like, you know, is this the kind yeah. of person who would who would be willing to go through anything? Um, you know who who would be want to who would be willing to be alive at all cost. Um, uh, what kind of life would they find meaningful? You know I, I think that that encapsulates that, and I love the fact that you know you put first the I don't know, so that in a way, uh, you know if if there's anything uh, important to ordering, it encourages people not to make a choice unless they really do feel strongly about one of these choices. So um, I think that's I think that's great. You know one question I have' and I just don't know the answer to this is to what extent do you believe that these um, uh, <clears throat> sort of types of approach are are fixed are sort of uh, intrinsic to the person or um, sort of shift over time? and uh, is the you know is the idea that this is going is revisited sort of when health status changes or how does, how does that work? I simply don't know. Like, I wonder about that. You know, what changes? Like, when you become closer to the point where the only way that you will be alive is in a limited fashion, is what you're willing to accept different than it would be sitting here in good health, where I say, ah, oh, I wouldn't want to be alive that way.
2: I don't have data what? from any studies uh, on how often people's general preferences mm-hmm. change, but come to think of it, it doesn't really matter because our, our, our processes are, and our kind of clinical kind of protocols need to accommodate even the occasional person for whom they might change. Right. 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 So in general, what I've been teaching over the Mm -hmm. years is, uh, I think it's the four or five D's I can never remember, but, uh, they, these ought to be, revisited as part of routine Mm -hmm. health maintenance um, every decade Mm -hmm. or at times of a serious diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That's number two, particularly the diagnosis of early dementia is number three Uh, at times of divorce Mm -hmm. uh, or at times where there's been a death in the family of somebody close to you. So all of those key life events Mm -hmm. should trigger. It's time to Take a look and see if you still agree with who you named, because you may now be divorced from yeah. that person, or they may have died, or they may have dementia and no longer mm-hmm. able to discharge their their uh, role as you assign them. Uh, but your own preferences, of course, may have changed as well.
1: Right. Well, that makes sense.
2: So let me tell you the other okay, thing that yeah, we've done because I'm as as I was reading, you know the editorial Mm -hmm. that sparked your piece, your article, which touched me a lot and resonated with a lot of people, but me as well. Uh, I've been getting increasingly excited about how we've not been nihilistic, but really leaned in to try to redesign this. So the other thing we did was uh, even that easy form still has to be witnessed or notarized, which, again, you know, we've created like sign-free zones in our clinics. You know, we really want you to do this, but you can't do it here, right? right, right. right? (laughs) It's really, it's bizarre. And the hospitals are even worse. What we did was we said, okay, well, we're going to create a, a another document that is exactly like our easy form mm-hmm. that, you know, sections one and two are exactly alike, but instead of the witnessed and notariz- notarization, we're going to put a statement there that says the patient I am uh, meeting with today has capacity to make healthcare decisions, and then it is signed by a doctor, nurse practitioner, or PA, somebody with a independent license so the signature attests to the person's decisional capacity and then records their verbally expressed wishes on this easy form which we have um, labeled a trusted decision maker declaration and we went all the way through governance in our very large health system to have the trusted decision maker form acknowledged by policy as a legitimate expression of a patient's wishes unless or until it is replaced or supplanted by a formal advance directive.
1: That's great. I mean, that that sort of decreasing the barrier to entry um, to me uh, and encouraging it to be a conversation with your clinician, um, right. Who knows you and now knows you better. Uh, I think, I think it's vastly preferable to having it notarized that. I mean, nobody's going to notarize something twice. Like I, I feel like I have (laughs) failed. There's definitely sort of like medical forms that just have not happened for me because the idea of finding, finding a notary is one of the hardest things that you can ask me to do. Um, it's very hard. It's really hard. You have to go to a bank or something? It's really, really confusing. And who um yeah.
2: And it's and it's kind of this antiquated um construct. It's it's like, you know, I, I was thinking earlier today actually in, in thinking about the conversation we're gonna have, it, it's like we're we're driving a V eight um uh my, my GTO, which I, I had an old GTO when I was in medical school in 1974, <laughs> right? And it's like we're trying to drive it today. It's a, it was a beautifully designed and engineered then, real muscle car. I loved it, right? But, you know, we're living in a, in a uh, at least a hybrid, if not an all-electric world. Right. Like, you wouldn't build that thing now. And yet we're still using these paper documents— yes. Asking asking for notarization which really doesn't add value. Mm. Uh, and, and that's and then we're saying I don't know why we're failing. This doesn't seem doesn't seem like it's like it's working.
1: If if people have the information that you elicit in this form, I mean that would be helpful in an ICU. That would be helpful. Right.
2: And and having, yeah. you know, I haven't spent as much time in ICUs as you have, but I I've spent many many days working in ICUs mm-hmm. and uh, sure. in my in you know in my roles. And yeah. and I agree. Like you, you want something that's useful. I don't it makes no sense to me whether somebody, you know, said yes I'll have antibiotics, but I know I I I don't, you know, I don't want pressors or I don't want it, it makes no sense.
0: That's Dr. Ira Byock, Senior Vice President for Strategic Innovation and the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And on the line from Boston, Dr. Daniela Lamas, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a frequent contributor to the op-ed pages of the New York Times. I want to let you know that we're planning a webinar for healthcare providers where we'll dive deep into the place of social media in your practice. Where are the lines being drawn? Where are the guardrails? Do you have questions about best practices for clinicians and the use of social media? If so, we want to hear from you. Drop us an email, hearmenowstories at providence.org, or leave us a voicemail on 424-212-5436. I'll repeat that number at the end of the program. Okay, back to our guests, Dr. Daniela Lamas and Ira Bayok, and their conversation on advanced care planning on the Hear Me Now podcast. So
2: here's an idea. I, I want to pitch an idea to you. but I, Okay, so imagine if we had a coalition of major health systems, all of which I would bet have uh, less than half, probably less than 40% of their adult patients have advanced directives on file. So let's, what would it be like if a integrated health systems across the country uh, came together and said, we wanna create a community standard for goal alignment and uh, that, Uh, is built in a different way that uses a form somewhat like what what I just described and that uses the attestation of a licensed physician, nurse practitioner, PA, that says the patient has decisional capacity and this is who they appointed and this is in general what they said they wished, including, I just don't know, talk to the person I appointed. In a sense, I think and I, I hope this would begin to move the needle and establish a new, credible, and probably would it would it would need to go through the courts to see if the courts agreed. But my sense is that the courts would probably smile on this mm. these documents as uh, strong evidence of the patient's wishes. And we might get ourselves beyond the uh, being tied to the uh, chassis of of this kind of muscle car contractual model. Yeah.
1: Would you so in this um, uh, scenario, are you thinking that you would want? Would you begin with sort of a high risk population? Are you saying maybe? But you're saying the goal is sort of everybody who passes through this health system, every adult uh has this in the record Uh,
2: i would start i guess i guess it's integrated so uh, i i'd love this to be a focus of primary care
1: okay
2: i mean you know we are in a digital world right we we are you you know it's the things are not like they were in the 80s and the early 90s so for instance the trusted decision maker tool i actually used during the pandemic, yeah. when we were doing telehealth consults to emergency departments around goals of care conversations. And I could complete a trusted decision maker by a, by phone or a telehealth visit mm-hmm. and enter it into the patient's tr- electronic health record. And by policy within Providence, that could stand as good faith evidence of the patient's uh, uh chosen decision maker and general preferences right it it's it was it's designed to function well in an environment that uh is m- much more common today mm-hmm. um because we may be even having primary care visits by telehealth Earth.
1: yeah
2: more and more than than we were so yes uh i kind of see this as the entry as ambulatory mm-hmm. or primary care but i also wanna Keep in mind, you know, who's going to be using this when a stroke happens, bad car accident, advanced progressive illness. So I would I do think that this design would uh, ease the way of families. Mm -hmm. And we ought to come back to why these things are valuable, because I think I think they're mostly valuable to families even more than to patients later. Uh, and, and the clinicians that are caring for them during a crisis.
1: Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I'm just wondering. You know, a lot of the um, or some of at least the arguments about uh, advanced directives not sort of meeting their uh, goals has been well, it's not benign because a lot of training. You know, sort of. M- physician hours and money goes into this. So well, I was wondering, you know, do we need training of, of clinicians to go through this form with somebody? But the way you're saying it, uh, no, I mean, this isn't lay language. It's saying this is who you are right now with whatever health status you have and whatever you've seen in your life. Uh, tell me about yourself or you don't know, which is also fine. Uh, so it actually seems right. like there's not, not any sort of significant barrier, um, nor is it, nor is it binding, uh, which is what I, I mean, I like I like the fact that you don't need a notary. Um, I I like the fact that it's saying, you know, this is who I am. Um, uh, But you know, it also relies on clinician's judgment to say, uh, is there a chance things can be okay or not? Because you know, these categories are saying, well, I'm somebody who if things really aren't going to be okay by any stretch of the imagination, I'd still be willing to live or I wouldn't. But that relies on a clinician's judgment and that changes over the course of an admission. so you know you allow a trial of critical care in that. Um, I think I think all right. of that is, uh, you know, because That's you right. don't know which category you're going to end up in uh, until you've tried some things. Um, right,
2: right. And and you know, for what it's worth, we we've had this in practice now within Providence, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it it has affirmed my clinical experience. Yeah. Right? I've asked people for years, even during hospital visits. Yeah. Uh, You know, before we conclude the visit today, after a new consult in palliative care, for instance, um, I I see that you've never filed one of those advanced directive forms. Let me ask, who would you trust to speak for you if, heaven forbid, you know, you had a stroke Mm -hmm. or something bad happened uh, today? You know, and the large majority of people can give you at least one person Mm -hmm. they trust to speak for. Uh, So I can complete the the essential (laughs) part of that form in a single visit. Usually in a in a few minutes, two or three minutes, right? And then they might have to think a little bit further about their general preferences. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, for my experience has been when you start asking people if they want ventilation or dialysis or something, they usually say, "Well, I don't know. Leave that with me. I got to talk to my family." And then again, it it's landfill. It you never see it again.
1: Which is honestly the best outcome because if they're just being like, no, nah, I don't, I don't want a ventilator. I mean, I don't want a ventilator. Like, who wants any of that? But uh, would I be willing to tolerate it if I needed to to get through a catastrophic injury or illness? Yes. Um, but that's not in that form. So, so I think right. I think what what you ask does allow for that, uh, and probably people can answer it or know that they can't answer it fairly quickly. Yeah.
2: So, so I know our time is getting a little within
1: the system of Providence, but yeah
2: yeah it's it's working pretty well i mean we' we're still at the beginning of socializing something across oh, sure. a, a health system with fifty three hospitals and wow. you know thousands and thousands of of doctors and one hundred and twenty thousand employees takes a while but mm-hmm. but we have some early adopters that that are loving mm-hmm. this this approach um I, I, I also took exception with the editorial, saying, you know, there's there's no evidence that um, these discussions and these forms uh, have any positive impact, and and you know, I, I was reminded of that phrase, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You may be, we may be trying to measure the wrong things. I agree. And, you know, I don't know, I assume you read Randy Curtis's editorial. I was actually about to
1: say that to you. Yes. Yeah.
2: And, you know, Randy, I've known Randy for years and, and, and that resonated with me. And, you know, I have an advanced directive, not because I have a serious illness, but because I have a wife and daughters, right? The very fact, even today in my very good health, the fact that I have an advanced directive to Lessen their burden mm-hmm. gives me a sense of confidence right now. That's that is real benefit to me. It's not trivial mm-hmm. uh, because I've having spent so much time in emergency medicine and the like. I I recognize that I could die at any day or I could have a car accident, but it 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 lessens my burden. And then I you know as Randy discussed in his own family, how many times have I been in a family meeting, with uh, for a patient with a bad trauma, sepsis, stroke, and simply being able to look at a document that has their general preferences, or talk about if there is no document, tell me about your mom, and and what her what she loved most in life, and what gave her life meaning, and what was her general feelings about healthcare. That that making that pivot uh ease ease the burden that the family was feeling we haven't measured it but it sure seems pretty obvious
1: no i i i do agree with that i i do agree and, and you know i think getting back to the first question um that we were asked and that we were talking about and to the word you know the point of the word advance i mean i, I argue that it's not entirely clear that that uh you know, for Randy Curtis now to have that conversation, um, even people who are arguing there's no benefit to way advanced care planning would probably say that, you know, having a conversation about goals and values when you have been diagnosed with uh, ALS, that that is actually no longer Advance um, that that is that is sort of uh, serious illness uh, care planning. Um and so perhaps the benefits that are yielded to him and his family are different, um, though equally important. They're clearly than the difference than the benefits for um, me to talk to my family, I guess is all I'm saying that there's there's something yes. different there
2: for our listeners, we should clarify right. that that Randy uh, Curtis is a fabulous uh, uh, critical care doc, a, a thought leader in, in both critical care and and palliative care, uh, who has been diagnosed with bulbar ALS, and wrote a response, I think, to the uh, JAMA op-ed, uh, talking about uh, the importance and value of advanced care planning in his own life with his parents' mm-hmm. uh, illnesses and and now with his own. Mm-hmm. But not well measured. Right. So the you know right. the fact that we can't measure things means that we have to refine our measurement schemas. But also, you know, we shouldn't be overly uh, nihilistic here.
1: No, I, I agree, and I think, you know, I think in the story that I told in this piece, where a patient sort of seemed to change her mind. Um, ultimately her proxy knew what she wanted, what her proxy ended up deciding aligned with what she wanted. And they had had conversations that were broad about, you know, he knew what was important to her, even if it didn't actually, uh, say specifically, you know, if, even if it was not the same as what had been on a document. And so I think that, that those, those conversations, um, uh, are important uh, on many levels, both the information that is given and also just the trust um, and and saying things that are scary and knowing that you can say them. So uh, and the fact that that's unmeasured or unmeasurable even doesn't mean it doesn't matter. I do agree with that.
2: I'll say one other thing about before we we start to close and leave this topic, and that is we're we're so committed to outcome measures and and I and and i think there are ways to to measure the outcomes of goal aligned care but i also think there is intrinsic value in this iterative conversations the goals of care or shared decision making conversations and that maybe in this realm of decisional support or or quality of decision making maybe we should be less focused on outcomes and and simply accept that the that the fact that decisions are being made in a shared way with family is itself intrinsic evidence uh, of goal alignment.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, it's well said. I'll think about that.
2: Well, what have we missed uh, in this conversation?
1: It's definitely made me think. How about you, anything you think that we've missed?
2: I want to start a movement. Uh, I think I think we need to bring health systems together because I can tell you, I've talked to some attorneys about redesigning uh, advanced uh, care planning and the ones within Providence, by the way, we have a fabulous uh, legal affairs department and they they're on board, by the way. They they get it. Uh, But I've talked to some external uh, attorneys and and um, particularly in the legislative people in legislation uh, and they they're unwilling to give up the notary they it has almost a magical power over them they, it's really odd uh, so i but they but they what i get from the legal the healthcare law people is if there was sufficient mass mm. of health systems that said this has failed we're going to adopt a community standard that you you begin to develop a community standard that it's it's highly likely the judiciary w- would uh, accept as evidence of
1: gotcha. of the
2: patient's wishes.
0: Huh. Hi, it's Sean. I'm going to jump in with a point of personal privilege as host. You've both done a great job in this conversation pointing to the importance of naming a proxy, um, a surrogate decision maker, a trusted friend who knows your mind and whom you trust to act in congruence with your values if you're not able to speak for yourself. My question is what do you do with the socially isolated patient, the lonely patient who can't name someone to serve as their proxy?
1: I mean, you know, we see in the unit for sure um, the sort of lonely patient who, uh, tragically, in the hospital, the the term I don't know if it's beyond my hospital, but the the term is an unbefriended patient, which is yeah. awful um, uh, and very uh, poignant, obviously. I mean. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, we reach out to that person's physician, do they have a good relationship, things like that. Ultimately, if there's no one, um, the hospital uh, does end up making decisions for somebody if they, you know, are not going to be able to make decisions for themselves over a period of time uh, until um, a guardian, which is really the uh, a tough scenario to be in uh, because guardians um generally err on the side of doing everything when there's anything to be done, which makes sense. They don't know this person. It is hard to back off. Um, You know, a legal guardian is ultimately found. So which is which is more even more reason for somebody who doesn't clearly have family to say, you know, even my primary care doctor, uh, that's somebody who I would trust. Um, Something like that. Go ahead.
2: So, yes, uh, Daniela, what you said is entirely Mm -hmm. accurate. As a palliative care doc, mm-hmm. our my approach has been to those people uh, first to try to deliver deliver them from anonymity. Right. So many consults come in to see right. an unbefriended patient in the ICU, mm-hmm. and and we get we get nosy, and start calling uh, everybody who ever touched that person that we can find, and try to find out who this person is who, I'll make him a he for the uh, economy of discussion, who who uh, he felt was his friends uh, while active, uh, what he liked or didn't like. Uh, general, just trying to dig into the person's history in some way. Uh, find somebody, even if it's uh, a nurse's aide who has been with this person who may know him Reasonably well, and then we write extensive social history notes in the chart. If if we can't find anybody, any relative that we might name as some sort of default surrogate, and many of the state laws do have a kind of surrogacy ladder for by relationship, uh, then we um, may have to get the ethics committee involved. But we try to deliver the person from anonymity, talk about the person as a whole person, and then within the available treatment decisions or treatment available, their potential for f- uh, further recovery or functional outcomes, see if we can come to some consensus. We may or may not have to get the court involved to uh, to name a guardian. If, if we do have one or more people who know that person and we can come to a clear consensus, uh, meaning just i don't mean this to sound crass but there's nobody to complain or sue right right (laughs) Right. Right. then we may be able to make a decision in the person's best interest without going down that that guardian route which is really onerous to everybody involved but we get nosy We, we 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 start poking around
0: ira daniela thank you both for taking the time to engage with each other and with us today it's been a pleasure. Listening to your conversation. Thanks. It's
1: an honor to speak with you. So thank you guys both so much. Make me think.
2: I feel the same, uh, Daniela. Keep writing. I, I I so appreciate your perspective that you bring. It's really been so helpful in not only this topic but many more that you've addressed. It's it's wonderful.
0: Kind of you. Danielle Lamas is a pulmonary and critical care physician in Boston she practices at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Ira Byock is a palliative care physician and the founder and senior vice president for strategic innovation at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Ira's books include The Best Care Possible, and the four things that matter most. A reminder that we're planning a webinar on social media best practices for providers. We welcome your input and questions. Write to us here at hearmenowstories at providence.org or leave a voicemail message for us on plus one, 424-212-5436. That number in California is 424 212-5436. 212-5436. The country code is one. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians including Basha Dolovska Elliott, Sarah viscuso and Heather Martin. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.